0: My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop. Your feel-good fiction podcast sponsored by Pavers. Pop on your favourite pair of slippers, curl up in the comfiest chair and listen to your favourite authors chat away in My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop. Landing wherever you are. So come on in. And join me, Claire Gill, our bookshop host, as we hear from one of my weekly's favourite authors. Like any good story, there are three parts to our podcast. In the first chapter, we kick off with a short story or an extract from our guest's latest book. The middle chatty chapter is Quiz the Author, where the author answers all your questions. Followed by Book Post, our final cosy chapter, with a roundup of the hotly tipped book of the week. This week, we are joined by the talented Stacey Halls. Born in Lancashire, Stacey is known for her historical novels, descriptive settings, and that edge of mystery. An avid reader when she was younger, Stacey even tried out for a part in Harry Potter. After a career as a journalist and having worked at the bookseller, Stacey's debut novel, The Familiars, hit the bestsellers list followed by The Foundling. She's now back with her third novel, Mrs. England. Welcome, Stacey, to the My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop. Do come in. It's lovely to have you here. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Chapter one, Reading Corner. Make yourself at home with a comfy chair and a cuppa As Stacey reads you an extract from her latest book, Mrs. England, My Weekly prides itself on its fabulous fiction. Take it away, Stacey.
1: The extract that I'm going to read today is from the first chapter of Mrs. England. And the story follows Ruby May, who's a nanny working for a young family in London in 1904. And her mistress, Mrs. Radlett, has just invited her to the parlour to have a little chat. The parlour was at the front of the house, seldom used and stuffy in summer, with the windows fastened to keep out the dust from the street. The blinds were closed against the heat, and the lace curtain hung flat against them. The Radlet's house was tastefully decorated and filled with antiques, the mistress even had her own library. As a couple, they were intellectual and political. They entertained often and friends called frequently at the house, filling it with cigar smoke and leaving sticky rings of sherry on the sideboards, decorating the hat stand with feathers and ribbons like a strange tree of exotic birds. In the eaves of the building there was little to disturb me, but occasionally Mrs Radler asked me to bring Georgina down to kiss and pass around before bed. She always deferred to me and was politely inquisitive about her daughter's diet and routine. There was no doubt whatsoever who was in charge. Do sit down, she said now. I took a seat in a stuffed armchair beside a potted fern. I have some thrilling news. Mrs Radlett placed a hand on her rounded stomach. She had recently begun to show beneath her waistband, and Ellen had let out her skirts. I've been longing to tell you for weeks, but Mr Radlett forbade me until it was all agreed and finalised, which it was last night, so now I can share it with you. I felt a glimmer of excitement and straightened my apron. As you know, Mr. Radlett is doing splendidly at Dahlberg and Howard, so splendidly that... She spoke slowly, pausing as if for dramatic effect. The firm is sending him to Chicago to work there as their senior architect. He's going to design a university, Nurse May. Isn't that wonderful? She clapped her hands, barely able to contain herself. She went on quickly. Of course we want you to come with us, to be Georgina's nurse out there. I hope you wouldn't imagine for a second that we would go without you. "'Oh, please say you'll come. "'Mr Radler is searching for a house for us now. "'You wouldn't believe what you can get in America. "'Positive mansions were practically pennies. "'And there are wonderful parks and shops "'and new buildings going up all the time. "'Heavens, our next child will be an American. "'How about that? "'I hadn't thought of that until now. "'How strange.' An expression of childlike wonder moved across her face. "'Chicago,' was all I could say. "'Even from my mouth, the name sounded foreign and glamorous.' Coming from a smoky suburb of Birmingham, I thought London the most exciting place on earth, but Chicago was as distant to me as Mars. I calculated how long it would take for a letter to reach me there, how long it would take to return home, and a small, hard shape like a pebble formed in my stomach. Yes, Mrs Radlett was saying, we must pack the house and ship our things, so that will take some time, but we hope to be on a steamer ourselves in a month or two. I know Dennis is eager to get started.' The passage goes to New York and we can take a train from there. I expect we'll stay in New York for a spell, wouldn't that be something? I've always wanted to go there. Nurse May, are you quite well? You do look queer. Yes, ma'am. Oh, do say you'll come. You will come, won't you? I'm afraid I can't do that. Silence. The carriage clock ticked and the porcelain spaniels observed tranquilly from the mantelpiece. Mrs. Radlett had not been expecting my reply and attempted to recover herself, stroking her stomach automatically. "'Why ever not? "'Of course, you must take a few days off before we go to bid your farewells.' I could not meet her eye and stared at the carpet. Nurse May, I thought you'd be pleased.' "'Oh, I am, ma'am. "'I'm thrilled for you and Mr. Radlett.' "'But not for yourself. "'Are you unhappy with us?' "'No, I'm very happy here.' "'Then why on earth won't you come?' I simply can't fathom going without you, Nurse May. I hadn't even considered it. I won't consider it. You're like a family member to us and Georgina adores you. I adore you and Dennis does too. Her voice trembled and grew higher and I realised with horror my mistress was about to cry. My own throat thickened and my nose stung with tears. Thank you, ma'am. You're so good to me. You are Mr Radlett and I am so fond of Miss Georgina. Then why won't you come? Is it your salary? I'll speak to Dennis about increasing it, if that's the case. I shook my head. It's not that. Are you unwell, then? Or betrothed? Relief flooded her. Are you engaged to marry? Nothing like that. Heavens, what is it, then? It's my siblings, I said. I can't leave them. She burned with alarm and curiosity. Forgive my indelicacy, but I thought your parents were alive. They are, ma'am. Has one of them been taken ill? No. Out of work? No. Then why ever can't you leave them? My voice cracked with sorrow. I'm dreadfully sorry, Mrs Radlett. She sat back in stunned silence. Across the square, a carriage discharged its passengers, then continued on its circuit. The horse hooves reached a crescendo outside the window, then faded. I thought of Georgina asleep upstairs, and the jam jars lining the windowsill, and the daisies in my pocket, ruined now georgina would wake soon and call out for me safe in the knowledge i would lift her from her cot and give her a clementine or a sugar biscuit i could not look at her mother because tears were blurring my vision the room was so quiet i could hear my heart breaking and it sounded like a daisy snapping at the stem
0: thanks for that fabulous extract stacy we can't wait to hear some more about this new novel after this short break We hope you're enjoying My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop, whether you're curled up at home in your favourite pair of slippers, or listening as you stroll in the perfect pair of comfortable shoes. We're sponsored by Pavers, the family-run shoe company, founded by Kathy Paver in 1971. Oh, happy 50th birthday, Pavers. With hundreds of styles available for women and men, Pavers prides himself on having a wide range of sizes available, one to 10 for women and six to 14 for men, as well as a huge range of widths for each size and style, all so that you can find your perfect style. And you can feel good about shopping there too. Pavers is the first major shoe retailer to achieve carbon neutral international certification and has given away more than a million pounds to date through the Pavers Foundation where employees can apply for grants for their local community. Plus, until the end of August 2022, My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop listeners can get free delivery. Just quote, weekly one, that's W-E-E-K-L-Y one, as in the number one, when you order. So whether you're tucked up at home, out for a walk, heading into the office, or dressing up for a special occasion, find your perfect style at pavers.co.uk. That's P-A-V-E-R-S.co.uk. Now, let me top up my tea and then let's get back to the episode. Chapter two, quiz the author. This is the chapter where you get to quiz your favourite author and don't forget you can send in your questions for future guests. Leave a voicemail on 01382 Five seven five four eight six, or record a voice memo on your phone and email it to flyingbookshop at myweekly.co.uk, or just send an email to that address with your question. Follow us on social media to find out who our next guests are, or head over to our website, www.myweekly.co.uk, forward slash podcasts. Here we are. And on our bookshelf with its attractive cover, Mrs. England by Stacy Hawes. As the blurb says, when newly graduated nurse Ruby May takes a position looking after the children of Charles and Lillian England, a wealthy couple from a powerful dynasty of mill owners, she hopes it will be the fresh start she needs. But as she adapts to life at the isolated Hardcastle house, it becomes clear there's something not quite right about the beautiful, mysterious Mrs. England. Simmering with slow-burning menace, Mrs. England is a portrait of an Edwardian marriage weaving an enthralling story of men and women, power and deception, set against the atmospheric West Yorkshire landscape. Stacey Hall's third novel proves her to be one of the most exciting and compelling new storytellers of our times. The beginning was very atmospheric, Stacy, and almost quite spooky. Into chapter one, where we have an interesting insight, as well as notes of social history. How did you go about your research? I know you spoke to sources of Norland College, as well as the records office.
1: I kind of had two ideas to start with before the story took shape. The first one was the setting of Hardcastle Crags in West Yorkshire, which is just outside Hebden Bridge. And I actually moved there to write the novel, because I knew I wanted to set something there it's one of my favourite places. It's this sort of magical landscape with woods and rivers. And it's this kind of amazing valley um, that has so much secrecy enshrouding it. And it's just an amazing setting for a story about an isolated house, basically. So I had the setting, and knew I wanted to write about that. And then the second thing I wanted to write about, which didn't really have an obvious place in history for me to set it, was coercive control. It really interested me because coercive control was only made a crime in 2015. I wanted to explore that in a time frame when no one had any language for that and no one would really understand anything about it or what was happening to them if they were a victim of it. And even the perpetuators of it wouldn't understand that that's what they would doing so much. So from that came the idea of this house and this family and this marriage that someone almost had to be a witness to. So so that brought me to the position of who in a household might have that unique perspective. And I thought instantly of a nanny and I've always been really interested in nannies. I think even though, you know, nannies are still very much a part of the economy and the workforce, there's that kind of um, Edwardian almost fetishization of them. You know, you've got Mary Poppins and just the image in Victorian literature of this very benevolent, positive, um, almost anonymous force in a story, just this kind of presence who's there, who is very well-meaning or not, when I decided that the main character, Ruby, would be a nanny, I thought, of course, I might as well make her a Norland nanny because they are just the best of the best. And they're the kind of creme de la creme of um, nannies in the UK. And of course, there's the uniforms, which I thought were (laughs) just added a nice touch. Um, And they really, the more I read about them and researched about them, the more fascinated I became by them. So I actually was lucky enough to go to Norland College and meet with the principal there and chat with her about the history of the college and I got to look at some of the old badges that they earned for years of service and some of the postcards they sent home and to the college and it really did seem to me like a really um Great place to be a part of as a young woman in the late 19th, early 20th century, like a real family.
0: I love the element of that Norland nanny. I want to know though, was it sort of about the Edwardian period that fascinated you so much, in particular? that almost like gothic feel and mystery and the isolated grand house. How important was that sort of setting and that period of time? I landed on the setting of the early 20th century um, because
1: I, I was really interested in the perception of childhood in the Edwardian era. It's kind of seen in the media and I guess in culture and literature throughout the years as the golden era really of childhood. So that's when you've got some of my favourite books and films were set then. So The Secret Garden, The Railway Children, Peter Pan, Mary Poppins, and they all present this very rose-tinted, idealized version of childhood. We all have the image of the pear soap, for instance, with the, you know, it's always like a golden curly-haired child in a sort of white nightdress. Um, And I guess me wanting to set the story at that time was kind of, I guess, being a writer, you're always wanting to Probe and unpick and look behind things into the dark corners and see what was going on in those very idealized setups. And because I was so familiar with nannies in literature myself, particularly children's literature, I guess I wanted to kind of bring that point of view in and tell the story of a childhood from the point of view of a nanny, who we never really have heard from in literature before. Even Mary Poppins isn't from her point of view, it's from the children's point of view. Um, And one of the things that intrigued me as well about that was, first of all, I didn't feel like I could begin writing the story until I knew Ruby's motivation to become a nanny. And it made me think, why would a woman at the turn of the 20th century, when when there were all right, not absolutely loads of opportunities, but definitely more opportunities than were available 50, 30 years before. Why would a young woman want to be a nanny? Because it was and still is such a kind of grueling job, a thankless job. It's 24-7. You don't get much time to yourself. Some of the Northern nannies I spoke to for my research would you know, qualify that to this day. You don't get a lot of downtime. Um, it's kind of a friendless job. So at the time, you would be a member of a household but you're not a servant but you're not a member of the, you're not a member of the family so you're kind of in this hinterland this in-between space that's kind of isolated there might be rivalries there with the servants who probably think that you're a bit stuck up and better than them however you're absolutely not on the level with the family you're kind of there blending into the background taking the children to see their parents but ultimately raising their children and it's that kind of delegation of motherhood that i also think is a really interesting thing to explore in literature, how
0: someone you employ can know your children better than you. The characters are really intriguing. You give us little tastes of who they are, but you never kind of dwell long enough to fully get behind that kind of top layer, so to speak. Why did you feel that it was so important to leave some things unsaid? And I'm thinking of, you know, the characters, Mrs. England. And in particular, tell us about the Ruby Brown, without any spoilers, of course, who lived in 1896 and who Ruby May was based on. What I should say was first is I did
1: write the novel in third person, which was the first time I'd written in third person. But I wanted to have a girl and see if I could do it. I wrote the whole thing and read it back a few weeks later and just thought, this doesn't work at all. It's too detached. It's too removed. It felt like I was sort of observing a bunch of people rather than really in there with them. So I very quickly decided I need to, needed to write it from first person, which is which is the most comfortable voice for me. And as soon as I started writing, I thought, yeah, this is this is how it should be, because I very much wanted you to be there with Ruby and only have her kind of eyes and ears because she's this witness to this toxic marriage. She doesn't quite know what's going on. The ground is constantly shifting beneath her. And the only way that works is if that's from a first person perspective. Um, And that was a very conscious decision not to really get under the skin of her employers, because I think that's true to life. You know, people choose to present however they wish to present to their employees particularly it's not like they're on a level where they're speaking as friends and really getting to know one another and I just wanted to kind of explore how how well do you really know the people you live with because as an as a domestic employee you're living in someone else's house you're raising their children eating their food it's this kind of it's this kind of melting pot or to use another cliche a kind of a kind of simmering, this simmering tension at this boiling pot of different characters and personalities, but not really knowing each other, not really being intimate with each other. And that was very conscious to make Mrs. England this kind of, mystery essentially she's not really present in the household ruby's very surprised that she is nothing at all like mrs radler in the household she's just left she doesn't direct the servants she doesn't instruct the cook with the menus she doesn't really have anything to do with her own life her own family um and that's a real shock to ruby because coming from the background that she has she kind of thinks that she expects rich people or privileged people to be and act a certain way. She expects them to have no problems. And the book is kind of her coming to terms with her own naivety. So I always had the idea of writing about this nanny who was, you know, thrown into this household where she can't quite put a finger on what's wrong with it. Um, I didn't know why that was her. Job. I didn't know why she wanted to do that. And I was looking for kind of a backstory for her, a past for her. And nothing was really quite landing right. And then I went on um a, a little mini break with my husband to Bristol. And just by chance, we popped into one of the museums there. And I won't say which one in case it gives too much away. Um, but I came across weirdly the children's section, which was quite inappropriate. Um, I came across the story of these two little girls who weren't from Bristol, but something happened to them there and everything just clicked into place. And I thought, that's her, that's her past, that's what she's running from, that's what she's come from, and that's what she's escaping. And I, I do I do quite like to do that sort of thing. So I so even though Mrs. England is totally fiction,
0: Ruby's backstory is based on on a real person um named Ruby Brown fascinating and the other thing that i noticed is you return at regular intervals to periods of unease with certain characters again i don't want to give any spoilers away but you keep the reader speculating and the suspense really does gather towards the last third part of the book was this intentional and how as a writer do you craft this
1: it certainly was intentional and i think that was um so you mentioned earlier that it was gothic. It's not like I sit down and think I'm going to write a gothic novel. I'm going to write a gothic suspense novel. But ultimately I think you borrow tropes and you borrow, um, from books that you've enjoyed. And some of my favorites are, you know, Daphne du Maurier, Sarah Waters. I guess the closest, um, nod to this book would have maybe been My Cousin Rachel, which is one of my favourites by Daphne du Maurier, who has at the centre of it this very enigmatic woman, Rachel, who you just don't know whether you can trust or not, even right up until the end. So that was, I guess, my inspiration for Mrs. England. And the suspense thing was something that I I'm not, was not used to writing. The familiars and the foundling both had quite a lot of action and this, the tension was sort of in the action and the running around trying to find things out and, I don't know, rescue things, save things. So this was more of a slow burn. It was definitely intentional. I definitely didn't hit it right in the first two, three, four drafts. It was something that I really had to kind of fine tune and hone. But I really wanted to capture this sense of, to nod back to the gothic trope again, a woman not going mad, but close to it. So with the setting of the house, she's cut off from society. She has no friends there in this new place. She, I guess she has um a, a friendship with Eli, who is um Saul's tutor, but that's really the only kind of ally that she has. She's very worried because she's not hearing from her sister anymore, and she kind of relies on her sister's letters as a sort of lifeline connector to the family behind in Birmingham and slowly she's just starting to crack up a little bit. So that was <laughs> that was very much intentional and I wanted to create that sense of like I said the ground shifting beneath her feet, not knowing who she can trust, not knowing where to turn to and
0: just feeling completely alone. I think you did that. So brilliantly. I won't ruin it, but that ending, wow. <laughs> Captivating, Thank that you. was. Thank you. It's also in an p- old age tale of control and fortitude, of gender roles, if you like, at that particular time in history, um, of kind of being ignored to some extent because you've been a woman and male dominance. How important was it in your writing to show these gender roles at that particular time?
1: I think it's, it's obviously such a huge part of the stories I write because having written now in the 17th century, 18th century, and early 20th century, although there's, you know, they're hundreds of years apart, that really not an awful lot changed in terms of the roles for women. And I think that is what consistently draws me back to writing about the past, is because I'm a lot more interested in writing about the smaller spaces women occupy or the the small spaces that were allotted to them by society which are kind of confined to just the domestic arena essentially or the you know the very limited what uh, jobs available to them because i just think that is such a great um backdrop for tension because really you know all novels are studies in tension if everything was going great for everyone it wouldn't be a very interesting novel and i just think that 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 the limitations placed on women and the small spaces they occupy and how they navigate those spaces are just endlessly interesting to me and i think probably some people might think it's quite limiting to just set your novels in kind of houses and these kind of domestic settings but for me it's just such a rich tapestry for tension and for story because particularly in a house like Hardcastle house there you know six family members probably five different servants people calling all the time at the, at the back door you know knife grinders window cleaners that kind of thing that's like a little town in terms of the rivalries and the bitterness and
0: the hopes and the fears and the joys that everyone has I think that's really interesting and talking of sort of location and so on you've got this Stacey Hall's book club with all of these fans online some of them have even mapped out the locations um, like a book trail for Mrs. England I want to know how important is it to have this connection with your readers Are Oh, it's, it's just the best thing ever because
1: writing is such a solitary career. It's kind of a lonely job. You're alone most of the time. You might have the odd meeting with someone and then once or twice a year, depending on how often you're published, you go out on tour for a couple of weeks to bookshops and meeting readers and going out on tour is always the highlight of my year, really, because I spend all my time alone in my study on the internet and writing. And um, it really is just kind of, it it just gives me so much energy. And it's almost shocking to me, actually, every time I do an event to look at how many faces there are in the audience and just kind of realise, oh, these... You know, I'm a writer and these people have read my work. It's quite an externalizing moment because it's such an internal cerebral job. It's hard to, it's not like I sit there day to day thinking, who's reading my books? You don't really think about the people reading them until you meet them and you're like, oh my God, people actually read the words that I (laughs) sit hunched over my laptop and write every single day. Um, So it's always incredible to meet readers and kind of kind of stay in touch the danger is of course staying in in touch too much on social media which is why I'm very limited now with my social media because it was all just getting a bit much really um a bit overwhelming but um it is it is amazing I absolutely love meeting readers and I know lots of writers are a bit shy when it comes to that side of things but um it's not something that doing events and and speaking about my work in front of you know however many people sometimes 100 people is something I if you'd have asked me before I did this would have probably imagined that I dreaded and been
0: terrible at but I do absolutely love it you know it's getting that balance isn't it between online and meeting people in the flesh which has been difficult to do of late hasn't it but you seem to be getting that just right I want to know as well as a big fan of Downton and other period dramas, I think your books in particular, Mrs. England, would make such a good film or TV series. I want to know how would you feel about dramatising it and have you had any offers? <laughs> First of all, I love Downton. I'm the biggest
1: Downton fan. I just finished a marathon rewatch. I watched all six seasons in about a month. Um I absolutely love it. I would love for my um, books to be adapted for TV, film. The only one that has the rights have been bought for is The Familiars, um, which happened a couple of years ago. And it's very exciting, but these things take a really long time if they sort of ever come together at all. So um, there's not much to report on that, I'm afraid, other than the fact that rights have been bought. Um, the Foundling and Mrs. England are still for sale. I've been told that, um, so when, when they go out for sale each time, there's sort of like always great feedback, but the, the main line is the top line is, oh, period dramas just don't really, just don't really sell anymore. And that for that's so frustrating to hear as someone who's obsessed with period drama and watches it constantly, because I think one of the biggest successes in the past 12 months has been Bridgerton, which was Netflix's, you know, biggest show ever,
0: Um, So it's just not true, but whether they just say that because... They don't want to buy it. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I'm going to say, I'm going to put my neck out here and I'm going to say, if there's any TV execs listening, they need to read Mrs. England and they need to get that on tele because I think it'd be brilliant. I can just imagine, you know, the Norland uniforms now. I think it would so work. I used to work in TV and I can visualize it in my head. So I am with you on that and I'm sure they will pick it up. And it also really, really warmed my heart to hear that one of your favourite series of books, growing up, was Sweet Valley High. As a big fan myself, when I was younger, um, they were kind of the ultimate tween teen reading, weren't they? In the nineteen nineties. Oh yeah. And a world a world apart from your gothic historical novels. I mean, personally, I believe every book you read, whether it's Sweet Valley High or anything, you know, it adds to your writing experience. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And also a world apart from, you know, my
1: rainy mill town that I grew up in Lancashire, because they're set in, I think it's California, isn't it? Oh yeah, California. Oh, it just <laughs> it just seems, so, yeah, of course, Sweet Valley, California. Um, oh, it just seemed so glamorous and like you just like you say just a world apart from everything that I knew and was used to um I was obsessed as a child with series so I would I I I used to get all my books from the library in those days but um when I when I read anything that I enjoyed I basically wanted to go and read a million other versions of the same thing so I was obsessed with Animal Ark, Goosebumps, The Babysitter's Club, Sleepover Club, um sweet valley i would just read like 30 bu- 30 versions of the same book over and over again um i'm less like that now but they absolutely um shaped my taste and
0: and the kind of reader that I became and the writer that I became. I think that's just so good. I think I always say to everybody, just read. It doesn't matter what you're reading, just read because you're always going to gain something for it. And I just wanted to go and have milkshakes all the time, <laughs> <I was laughs> yeah. reading it, you know, just kind of wanted to be in the diner. Yeah, I wanted a twin sister and I wanted a milkshake. <laughs> exactly that. But talking of sort of Sweet Valley High, America, Hollywood, and so on, you once auditioned for the part of Luna in Harry. Potter do tell us how was that process and if you hadn't have been a best-selling author was acting something that you would have pursued (laughs) well I should mention that I I should first clarify by saying I'm not and
1: I never was an actor was never like never I think I went to like maybe a handful of drama lessons when I was about 11 um it was something that I would have absolutely loved to do but you know how do you even start to pursue something like that but it was more that I was a massive harry potter fan um and i was about i think i was 15 and one of my friends told me that on um news round do you remember news round i worked for news round did you yeah
0: <laughs> when lise was there oh my Becky gosh Jago. yes <laughs> she
1: told me that she'd seen on news round um they were doing an open call casting for the part of luna lovegood because they were they were starting to shoot the fifth harry potter film so I think you had to be less than 17. Um but that was the kind of only characteristic that they gave and I thought oh my gosh this part was written for me you know I've got long blonde hair I'm a bit a bit dopey a bit loopy <laughs> this part is mine. Um so I made my mom come with me to Westminster and queue up with 8000 people in I think it was November so very cold. Um and queue up to go into this open casting audition and it was just a disaster basically because we queued for about eight hours went into this huge room that was like in a church hall with about 30 other girls and the casting agents just kind of did this two second sweep of all the faces in front of them and said thank you for coming you can all leave now (laughs) so that was the extent of my brush with fame um I wasn't, you know, I wasn't absolutely devastated. I was pretty, I was pretty annoyed because I thought that part was mine. And when the film came out, I was sort of first night opening, ready to go and watch who had got my part, but... um I'm over
0: it now, 17 years later. (laughs) Wow, that was hardcore, wasn't it? But so interesting to hear and and obviously helped build resilience there as well. Wow. Um, Now we've just got some time for some readers' questions. So the first one we've got is from Daisy. And she says, firstly, she wants to say, Stacey, I absolutely adore the way you write. You're the first person in a long time who's inspired me to get back into writing. So thank you so much for that. Oh, that's amazing. Amazing. Thank you, Daisy. And her question is how do you research like what's the process what do you read what do you watch where do you go so she sort of says the atmosphere in your books is so impressive and she's so intrigued by how you manage that kind of atmosphere when you're writing and she said oh her email is so sweet She says thanks so much looking forward to maybe hearing the response and of course your fourth book so she's even looking forward to the next one. Oh, <laughs> so yeah so she wants to know about the whole you know reading process and I know you've said you've visited places before but do you have kind of a schedule I guess is what she's asking.
1: Um well when it comes to research I always start with the story. So however I get the idea for the story I kind of spend a bit of time thinking about it maybe making some notes and as it starts to take shape usually I can tell what setting is attached. So with the first two books it kind of had to be that place and time. So with the familiars which was based on the Lancashire witch trials it was kind of straightforward what I would research there. And with The Foundling, I knew I wanted it to be about The Foundling Hospital in the time period when they used the tokens. So that, again, um, uh, sort of determined when the book would be set. With this book, it wasn't so much like that. I knew I had the setting and I knew I had the vague atmosphere of the story. But I think Daisy, you're absolutely right in pinpointing that atmosphere is the absolutely the most important thing that you have to try and nail as a writer. You can do two, three years worth of research. And if you're just sort of regurgitating facts without building a world that feels authentic and giving the story atmosphere, it's going to read quite flat. It's going to fall quite flat. Um, so when I'm doing my research, I'm always looking for atmosphere and it's quite hard to define exactly what that is. sometimes I'll just jot jot down um little sort of things that I want to include or you know i'm I'm looking at I'm looking at everything around how people live their lives. So even if I don't have a particular character in mind, um I'll be looking at crime punishment, food, drink, clothes, work, and reading up on those things definitely brings ideas and more plot points to the front of the to the front of my mind. Um so it's kind of a two it's kind of a double pronged approach where you ab- as a historical novelist you absolutely have to spend quite a considerable time researching but at the same time you don't want that to distract from the story you don't want to. I definitely use it as a procrastination device as well. Let's face it like the more spend the more time you spend researching you know That you still don't have to start writing. You can just sort of push it back and back and back and think, well, I've not got enough story. I've not got enough color yet. Um, I love the research though. It's my favorite part. I think in another life, I would have been a probably quite bad historian um, because although I'm obsessed with the detail, particularly with social history, I do like to just kind of take the shiny bits. Um, So it's probably good to start generally And then as the story becomes clearer in your mind, you can then hone in on particular parts that you might need to know more about.
0: Excellent. Oh, gosh, that's so fascinating to hear you talk about that. And I know Daisy will be pleased with that answer. And she did hint there asking you about that fourth book. So will there be? When will it be out? Do we know? (laughs) There absolutely will be a fourth book. Um, I have
1: started writing it very slowly. Um, There's no release date for that one as yet. But um, all I can say about that one is it's set in the mid-19th century. So the first time I'm delving into the Victorian era, which is actually my favourite era.
0: So I'm very excited about it. Oh, that sounds brilliant. Oh, thank you for sort of giving us that little bit of the exclusive there almost. And talking of putting things off. Pat Holness has sent a question in. She says, um, she wants to know, how do you cope when your mind goes blank from ideas? Does it happen? She'd love to know. I'm guessing you're going to say you just start doing some more research. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But yeah, you're right on there, Pat. Um
1: yeah, that happens to me all the time. All the time it happens to my mind goes blank. What I usually do if that happens is I tend to write... Um, in kind of little scenes, so I don't I don't overwhelm myself with chapters. I if I get an idea for a scene, I'll just start a new document and start typing away. And it, sometimes that shift away from the scene that you've been previously working on that's that's left you feeling a bit flat or a bit blank, just a shift away into a different character's perspective or a different setting or a different time in the story that can help. And even if you don't end up using it, you know, like I've. I probably cut, I don't know, 80% of what I end up writing for, for the final story. Like with my fourth novel, I've handwritten about probably 10,000 words and only used about one to 2,000 of them. Um, you're just kind of trying to build, you're just, you're just feeling your way into it. So don't feel like everything you put on the page is in indelible black
0: ink, um, it doesn't need to be permanent. Oh, that's such good advice. You know, that that really is interesting to hear because I know when I was speaking to Adele Parts last year, she said, you know, she cut 50,000 words once. And I was like, what? Can you imagine that? But I think it's that idea of bravery. Write it anyway. And if it's no good, you can always cut it out. I think that's brilliant advice for me there, Stacey. We've got one last reader's question. And this is an audio call that Jenny has phoned in. Hello, this is Jenny Worstall with a question for Stacey Halls. Stacey, how long do you spend on historical research before you write a book?
1: Oh, thank you, Jenny, for your question. Um, I don't set a prescribed time. For me, it's usually a few months, a good few months for me to feel like I need to feel my way into the story and build up enough kind of colour and background for the whole thing. So, I mean, that's not to say that research stops when I finish doing that. I'm still doing it alongside writing because you just can't, you can't know everything that you need to know, um, by the time you start chapter one. But, um, I would say I do two to three months of just research and that usually by the end of that point, I'm sort of itching to begin then, um, itching to begin writing.
0: So yeah, a couple of months for me thanks so much Stacey for all those insightful answers and listeners for your brilliant questions remember if you've got an all-important question to ask your favourite author then check out the My Weekly website to find out which big authors are coming up on the podcast that's www.myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts and of course send those questions to flyingbookshop at myweekly.co.uk after all these fascinating answers from Stacey you're sure to want to get a copy of Mrs. England, so don't forget you can swipe down to the episode notes to buy your copy. Chapter 3, Book Post. And here we are in our final chapter with author Stacey Halls. After rifling through our stacks, the book that has made it through the My Weekly Magical Bookshop letterbox this week is The Gifts by Liz Hyder. As always, we promise not to reveal any spoilers, but just enough to entice you to read. Build as a Victorian-esque epic novel that tells of the pitfalls of ambition and the beauty and struggles of womanhood, it's a gripping and ambitious book told through five different perspectives and set against the luminous backdrop of 19th century London. It explores science, nature, religion, enlightenment. Is that what attracted you to this book? Yeah, definitely. I I think the period attracted me. I absolutely love um,
1: London-set Victorian novels. And the writer, Liz Hyder, I know that she, um, her first children's book came out a few years ago and won the Waterstones Children's Book Prize, bare mouth. And I was just intrigued by the premise of it with the wings and the woman running through a forest with these gigantic wings ripping from her back because it made me think, I know, I think as modern readers, we're very binary and we want to know, did this happen or did it not? Like even when it comes to me writing and reading things based on real life i want to go away and google exactly what was real and what was not um and just that mystery in, intrigued me and and i i couldn't put it down and with this kind of rich tapestry of, of perspectives you know you've got the doctor you've got his um neglected wife you've got um you've got a young woman who is um an aspiring journalist living in this kind of bohemian household. Um, They're all connected by this strange, um, I don't want to give too much away, but they're all connected by something that happens to them and they don't understand it. And it reminded me um, of one of my favourite childhood books, Skellig by David Almond, um, about the little boy who finds the angel in his garage. And it's kind of like a fun grown-up Feminist version of that. So I was very,
0: I very much enjoyed this book. It's funny that you say that because. I love children's books and it reminded me of Jessica Townsend, the Nevermore series about children all having talents and they go on a black market almost for the adults trying to buy their talents. And you've got adult novels like Circus of Wonders, The Smallest Man, recently where there's this concept of the spectacle of people that we are fascinated by differences and also greed as a downfall. Is that sort of how you felt it? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's something very um
1: kind of perverse about the Victorian obsession with the spectacles and the sideshows and the freak shows and you know people paying their hard-earned cash to go and look at people who were in some way different from them or different as you know described by society, decided by society. Um, and I think that's obviously a very ripe area for fiction. Like I very much enjoyed The Circus of Wonders this year as well and The Night Circus, which came out quite a few years ago by Erin Morgenstern and that kind of magical, ethereal, otherworldly, um kind of carnivalesque um those that the literature based on based on how people um make the most of their differences and um
0: kind of use them to lift themselves up rather than drag them down there's also that sense of folklore I think Natalia's when she says that she's telling the children stories of strange tales before they go to bed tales of mermaids and shipwrecks lost islands and angry giants and for me there's this idea later on in the book and again not not having any sort of spoilers of, of demons and wildness and of that kind of idea of folklore and that maybe this book is kind of the idea of a dark fairy tale if you like did you sort of see those sort of folklore references that in it yeah definitely a very dark fairy tale some of my favorite novels have that
1: kind of streak of magical realism running through them um where they kind of sometimes even finish on a note where not everything's nice and neatly tied up with a bow where it's this was real or this was a fraud or um
0: I very, much, I very much felt that with this. And there is this idea as well of women and the way they are treated as well and the strength of women ultimately. Was there a particular character that you empathised with in this book? I was very empathetic with all the women in the story who are
1: kind of each in their own way the victim of this I guess crazed scientist, which is a familiar trope in Victorian literature, but I think one that was obviously based on the um imbalance of power, the very realistic imbalance of power between men and women at that time. You know, being a doctor was a male profession. Um, and while women were able to study medicine, they weren't really able to practice it at that time, um, or certainly not have their own kind of practices. Annie, I really felt for Edward's wife. Um, because she knows that ultimately there's something really quite creepy going on with her husband who she's finding his, she's finding his behavior more and more alarming. But the institute of marriage at that time there was absolutely nothing she could have done she couldn't have escaped the marriage she couldn't have left him no matter
0: how despicable his behavior it also fascinated me how liz crafted the story and went for quite a complex structure i think within the first 21 pages we're introduced to five different perspectives Um, but instead of it being confusing i found that i was drawn into each character and i also like the authenticity of the newspaper reports that are sprinkled throughout the novel the idea of fact and fiction and even though the reader knows that the newspaper reports are made up, that they are still drawn to them. I like that particular technique. What do you think about the way that she writes? I loved the newspaper
1: inclusions. I think having been a journalist, I, I just love when um, sort of fictional newspaper reports are included in novels I find it like a really nice touch and I'm always reading with that very keen sub-editor's eye to see if it would have stood up in an actual newsroom um if it's something that would have been published and I thought Liz did that very well um there are definitely some novels that I've read where I think oh this would never have got through the uh never have got through the subs desk um but she that was a really nice touch and I think such a such a Victorian thing as well I love the varied several perspective um, narrative. I think it was very Dickensian actually. And that is something that I'm trying to explore myself with my fourth novel. So rather than having the the single gaze focus from the protagonist, um, that kind of Dickens-esque collection of characters, that real cast of characters who all are kind of jostling for their own Right to speak within the story and earn, very much trying to earn their place in the story. Um, so I loved that and found it a really nice
0: device, actually. Excellent. I'm thinking if we keep you on long enough, I'm going to find out even more about this fourth novel. So I'm just going to keep <laughs> you talking, Stacey. <laughs> Thank you for choosing it. And what a mesmerising and fascinating book. And if you listeners want to grab a copy of the gifts, then don't forget to swipe down to episode notes to find out how. Thanks so much, Stacey, for coming on the my weekly magical flying bookshop podcast do drop by again soon thank you so much for having me it's been really fun time at my weekly's magical flying bookshop has come to an end for this episode join us next time for more big name authors stories and extracts read just for you and our favorite book recommendations landing wherever you are whether you're out with the dogs, in a pair of sturdy walking shoes, heading into work, or cosied up at home in your comfiest slippers. If you love fiction, cooking and interviews with your favourite celebrities, then you'll love My Weekly. And as a listener to the Magical Flying Bookshop, you can try 13 issues of the print or digital magazine for just £6. Head to myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts Or call 0800 318 846 and quote the offer code MWPOD. That's MWPOD to save more than 60% on the cover price. Check the episode notes for details and terms. That's all for now. Pick up your copy of My Weekly and escape with our fiction stories. And until you pop into the bookshop again, have a wonderful booktastic week. I'm Claire Gill, and this was my weekly's magical flying bookshop, sponsored by Pavers, your perfect style.